Ahmed Aina Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Today's episode is a mixture of technical and career development discussions. Maureen Zapala, former engineer at NASA, explained what it meant to conduct jet propulsion research at the NASA Lewis Research Center, now known as NASA Glenn Research Center. We talked about the different experiments that could be conducted here and the challenges. Maureen also explained the ways in which she experienced imposter syndrome and what it consists of. We talked about examples of symptoms and strategies to help combat it. Maureen is author of Pushing Your Envelope, How Smart People Defeat Self-Doubt and Live with Bold Enthusiasm. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank Blind for being a sponsor. Navigating the workplace can be a challenge. Blind is an anonymous app for tech workers where they can discuss and talk about career development, compensation, corporate policies, workplace harassment, and many more topics. Go to teamblind.com to download the app and connect with other employees from your company. That's teamblind.com. Thank you. Maureen Zapala, former engineer at NASA and currently an author and speaker, is joining us today. Maureen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a joy to be here. You spent 13 years at NASA conducting jet propulsion research at the NASA Lewis Research Center, which is now the Glenn Research Center. And here you became the youngest and first woman manager of the NASA Propulsion Systems Laboratory. In this laboratory, just to get an idea, what are some experiments that can be done? The PSL facility is a full-scale aircraft engine test facility where we simulated actual flight conditions for live full-scale engines, real fighter aircraft engines, flight conditions meaning altitude and Mach number. It was a direct connect facility as opposed to a external flow facility. So we actually hardwired, hard plumbed an air supply directly into the inlet of the engine and then controlled the exit pressure of the tail of the engine, the engine nozzle. And the combination of the inlet pressure and the exit pressure gave you the Mach number. So we would conduct all different types of tests, system tests mostly. Some We did some fuel flow control tests. We did inlet temperature variation tests, uh, which was stall recovery, stagnation flow at the inlet phase. We did some exit nozzle tests. We did calibration of thrust beds. We Some of the tests that we did, you know, an engine, when it's flying, basically pushes thrust out one direction. Multi-directional thrust nozzles were created for some highly maneuverable engines. So we would do some six-axis thrust development or thrust measurement tests, which was kind of cool. It was quite an elaborate contraption. Uh, so we did some thrust vectoring tests. We did inlet temperature distortion tests where we actually would control the temperature variation across the face of an engine. We did all kinds of wild, fun, interesting things. I, I loved it. It was just every day was an adventure. Why were some of the reasons why you liked working there so much? When I was in college, I went to University of Notre Dame and I had a summer job between my, I think it was between my sophomore and junior year at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. 
I knew, I originally, when I went into engineering, I really thought I was going to be a structural engineer working on bridges and tunnels or building roller coasters. <laughs> Those are the two things I really thought that I wanted to do. That sounds fun. Yeah, I sure did. Even, and I mean, I love roller coasters and I grew up in New York City surrounded by bridges and tunnels and tall buildings. I figured that was a natural fit. But when I got to Wright-Patterson and I saw this whole world of jet propulsion and fluid flow and thermodynamics and heat transfer, it just lit it sounds weird. It lit my heart on fire. Then my senior year in college took some more propulsion classes, found that there was actually other facilities besides Wright-Patterson that did this type of work and applied to jet engine manufacturers for jobs. I applied at General Electric, Pratt & Whitney. I applied to the Navy because they were doing submarine propulsion units with with, um, gas turbine engines. Wanted to get into it. Ended up at NASA in Cleveland And from the minute I walked into this huge, fascinating, gritty, industrial test area with jet engines, I thought, this is it. I'm home. (laughs) And I started just as a little itty-bitty in-the-corner project engineer. And um, after, uh, I think it was after about five or six years, worked my way up into the position of the director of the facility. So it was a great ride. Did that transition come naturally or were you thinking in the back of your mind, oh, I want to grow and grow? I love the technical areas. And one of the things, and I'm, I'm sure it's pretty standard in a lot of engineering companies, companies will tend to reward technical excellence with a promotion into a management position. So I knew and at NASA, there was the technical path of promotion. I loved people. I was good at organizing things, delegating. I was good at collaborating, good at getting projects going. So it was a natural fit for my personality style to go from the technical area to the project manager and then into uh, the uh, facility manager. What stopped me, and as I think back, you know, back on my years as an engineer in NASA, and now what I speak on is imposter syndrome and the things that hold us back because we don't feel like we're as smart as everybody thinks we are. The thing that held me back is that the person who had the position of facility manager while I was a project manager was phenomenal. He was amazing. And I looked at him and I thought, man, I would love to have his job, but there's just no way I could do it. And then he was young enough that I thought there's no way he's going to leave the job. He wasn't close to retirement. Well, lo and behold, decided to go do something else. He got a promotion into another area of the lab and whoo, yeah, the job was open. And it took a lot of courage and a lot of putting on my big girl panties to even apply for the job. And I applied for it and got it. <laughs> was shocked. Exactly. Because you were probably overlooking your skills. You're like, oh, this this guy is really good, has all these skills. And you probably also had them, but didn't notice it. Well, yeah, I didn't believe it. I discounted my own skills because I brought different skills to the position. I was very different style from him. So uh, I thought I had to be a clone of him and got into the job and realized, oh, no, I can bring my own personality, my own perspective, my own way of doing things. And guess what? It was fine. The, the facility did not crumble and fall. The world did not come off its axis. And uh, yeah, we flourished. I want to focus a little bit more on this topic of imposter syndrome, which is one of the things you are talking about right now in helping other people after you left NASA for being there 13 years. Can you explain in more detail what imposter syndrome consists of? Sure. I will tell you that while I was at NASA, I didn't know that I suffered from it. 
wasn't until years later when I figured out what it was, I looked back and I thought, oh my gosh, that's what I had. It has a name. And not only does it have a name, it has a way out of this condition. But the imposter syndrome affects smart, educated, influential, accomplished, respected people to where they walk into their position, their job, their daily, whatever. And they look around and they think, oh my gosh, they all think I'm smarter than I am. And I'm not as smart as they think I am. So therefore, I feel like I'm living in this, I call it the gap of fraudulence. You know, I think I'm this, you know, I think my area of expertise is small. They think it's big. And I have to somehow live in that gap between what I am and what they think I am. So you feel like a fake. But the reality is you are qualified. You are intelligent. You do have the resources to do the job. It was not an accident that you got the job. It wasn't a fluke. It wasn't, it's not, your success is not going to evaporate. You legitimately earned your success, even if you don't believe it. (laughs) And what are examples of signs that someone has the syndrome? Yeah, there's a, a handful of symptoms. Now, the symptoms are things that a lot of people experience, but as a cluster, as a whole, the symptoms together point in this direction of this experience of feeling like a fraud. Um, one of the symptoms, like I just said, is this fear that, oh my gosh, they think I'm smarter than I really am. Another symptom is the woman that first identified this imposter syndrome back in the 70s. She calls it the Superman slash Superwoman complex, which is the tendency to feel like you have to do it all. Uh, you don't like to delegate. Delegating feels like a character flaw because you think I should be smart enough to do that. If I ask for help, that must mean I'm stupid. So there's a little cognitive distortion there. Another symptom is, of course, we all fear failure, but some of us fear success because with success comes the pressure to feel like you have to perpetuate the success. And the the person who experiences imposter syndrome isn't convinced they have it in them to keep that success going. So they'll shy back from success and they'll frame it as a fear of failure. They'll say, I don't think I'm going to do that because I think I'm going to fail. Where actually they're thinking, I'm going to succeed and then I have to keep succeeding. So it's a little, again, a distortion there. Another symptom is the need to be special. In other words, name droppers or perhaps known uh, in a certain circle of friends or hanging out with people of great influence because they think that I'm not worth enough. Therefore, in order for me to be worthwhile, I have to hang with somebody I perceive is worthwhile. Uh, So it's a little bit of a self-worth issue. Another symptom is feeling uncomfortable being silent, but yet afraid to contribute. And so in order to contribute, you contribute something that is either witty or uh, somebody else's wisdom or charming or in some way deflects people from thinking you're not all that smart. You know, I'm, I'm a great conversationalist and sometimes I do it intentionally so that people don't realize I really don't know. It, you know for example, you walk into a, a, have you ever walked into a, a, a circle of conversation and they're talking about something that you don't know about and you feel kind of silly or kind of uninformed, and you have two choices. You can either, three choices. You can stay there and be silent. You can walk away, or you can contribute something that is obliquely related to the conversation, but it's some kind of contribution. And usually it's humor or 
uh, yeah, I read something similar to that or something that adds, it feels like it adds weight or some kind of gravitas to the, to the conversation. You just feel compelled to add something. So those are some of the symptoms as a whole kind of point to this imposter syndrome. I see. So you're saying in the last example that if you feel you want to contribute something, even if it's something small and somewhat related, that's one of the symptoms. Yeah, because silence in the mind of the person who suffers from this, oftentimes silence reveals stupidity. And that's not true, but they believe that it is. I see. Just to add another example that I thought was interesting when I was researching for this interview, I read that For example, if you give a person a task, it could be a homework assignment or an assignment at work. Another sign is when the person receives this task, they start feeling anxiety, self-doubt, and worry. And two of the reactions that can come after this, getting this task, are the person procrastinates or they over-prepare. So those are two imposter syndrome signals. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely right. They'll either over-prepare or procrastinate. And the end result of both of those choices usually is the same. They knock it out of the park. They just do a fabulous job. Everybody is thrilled and celebrating and impressed. And, oh, my gosh, you're just such an amazing worker. You're so smart. You're so good, blah, blah, blah. And, and you think, oh, and you're relieved, but not because you did a good job and not because you got all the praise, but because you're thinking, oh, wow, that was close. They almost figured out I really didn't know exactly what I was doing. And then you get even more stress because, as I mentioned before, you think, oh, gosh, I got to do it again. <laughs> so this cycle perpetuates. Exactly. And if you choose to procrastinate and you finish the task, you can be like, oh, my God, I got so lucky I finished it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. If you overprepare, it's like, well, like, Obviously, I passed because I studied a lot. I overprepared so much. Yeah, it's like you deflect the reason for success onto something else besides your true skill and ability. You either blame it on an external circumstance or you blame it on the fact that everybody else around you must not realize that I'm really not that smart. I fooled them again. So you, you, you take pride in the ability to fool them and not in the ability to actually do the job. And then you feel guilty because you fooled them. It's just a crazy cycle. <laughs> and what are some of the downsides of thinking of some of your success as luck? Obviously, there's a, a luck component, but we have to think about it carefully, right? Yeah, I don't know if I'd call it luck. It's just the way the world works. Things appear to be haphazard and capricious, and they're really not. There's this, you know, intertwining of our lives, and some of it seems insignificant, and some of it can be turning points and pivotal moments. However you look at it, every event has a purpose, has a reason, and has impact for the future. So to say, oh, I was just lucky, uh, it just, I don't know, it just really diffuses your part in the grand scheme of how the world is working, the machinations of the world. Every encounter we have with somebody is significant. Every event we take part in is significant. Every choice we make can be a pivotal moment. So to discount it as luck, how, how's to say then that something that was not significant was not just as lucky? It just doesn't make sense. So the downside of calling it luck is that, you know, for example, if suppose somebody did something to orchestrate an event that you think of as lucky. I, you know, I got hired on as an engineer at NASA. The circumstances at that time, this was back in 1983, back in the dark ages, 
the circumstances at the time was that NASA needed more women. Okay, fine. That's a fact. Is it lucky that I was born in 1961 and was of age in 1983? I don't know. It's just the way that it was. The unluck part of it was I went to school. I chose the degree. I took the classes. I got the grades. I applied at NASA. So what part of that is luck? Was it luck that the circumstances allowed me to be hired? Or was it not luck that I did the work to get there? So to discount that and and take it even a step further, the fact that NASA needed more women, that's not luck. That was a business decision. That was a proactive decision on the part of the agency. There's nothing lucky about that. So to discount something as luck really diffuses a lot of people's effort, intentions, and clouds your ability to say, wow, I was a big part in a big story. Exactly. And I still see this today when I work in technology and there are scholarships for women, companies want to hire women, and some people get dismissed just because they're a woman. They can even think, oh, I, I got this internship because I'm a woman. But like you said, they have the skills, they have the background. And you're right, it's part of the business decision. We need more women designing products because women use software products and hardware products. So that's why it's wrong to think about things that way. One of the other things that I read is that while both men and women can experience imposter syndrome, there have been some studies that show that women are more often affected by this and suffer the consequences. What are some of the reasons for this? It's interesting because when imposter syndrome was first identified back in the 70s, it was initially thought to be exclusively a condition of women. And that's partly because the psychologists that identified this were working exclusively with women. In the interim, they, when they did talks and when they presented their findings to people, they would get a lot of men that said, hey, you know, it's not just a girl thing, it's a guy thing too, and here's why. What they have found, though, is that men and women process it differently. And some of it has to do with the symptoms, some of it has to do with the roots that cause somebody to experience posture syndrome. It comes from maybe your culture, maybe the family of origin, maybe the environment in, in which you choose to work. The environment I had at NASA, very different from a corporate environment, very different. They're just two different animals. So, you know, that has a lot to do with it. I think, however, one of the things, and I've done some gender studies, and I make, okay, here's I mean, here's my disclaimer. <laughs> These are sweeping generalities, not definitions, not concrete pigeonhole definitions. But in general, women want to feel secure and men want to feel significant. Okay, in general. Not to say, I mean, I certainly want to feel significant, but I want to feel secure. In other words, I want to feel safe. I want to feel as if uh, relationally I'm respected or that I'm needed. Men want to feel, they want to make their mark in the world. So for example, here's, here's a good way of illustrating it. Uh, suppose you have a man and a woman equally, for the, for the most part, equally qualified, and they're looking at a job description. They want a new job. They're looking at a job description. A woman, let's say there's six qualifications for the job. A man will look at the job description and say, hmm, okay, I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. Ooh, I can't do that. I'm going to go for it anyway. A woman would look at it and say, I could do that. I could do that. I can do that. Ooh, I can't do that. I guess I'm not going to go for it. So women need to feel secure at every level. Men need to feel significant at perhaps most levels, and they can push on with a lot less risk to their psyche. Now, men still do struggle with this 
I don't know if I, I don't know if I know exactly what I'm doing. They're just willing to take more risk. They're willing to put themselves out there. They tend to collaborate a little bit better, which is interesting because women are more relational. Women tend to want to fix things for other people. Men want to get more of a, they want to crowdsource a solution a little easier. So, you know, gender, again, general gender differences help them process imposter syndrome a little bit differently. Exactly. And like you said, some of the reasons of this come from way back from our culture and the way things were run back then. It doesn't mean that, oh, if I'm a woman, I'm, I won't want to be significant and make a mark in the world. It's just behaviors that were out of our control that made it through the way we are, but we can change them. And I want to talk about how we can change it, some of the solutions for coping with imposter syndrome. For example, if there's a listener right now saying, that's exactly how I feel, and just realizing that they have imposter syndrome, what would you recommend to them as a first step? Well, the first step is recognizing that they have it. Recognizing the symptoms, that does so much to alleviate the stress. Because when you're struggling with it, you feel alone and you think, I'm losing my mind. And then you realize, oh, wait, it has a name. <laughs> I guess I'm not crazy. And then you look around and you realize, oh, there's other people that struggle with this too. Now I'm really not alone. So that immediately diffuses the power that this has on you. you. Think it has a name. I'm not alone. Okay. That's step one. You figure out that you have it or at least identify it. Uh, the other strategies that I teach are really simple, but not easy. And they are not moments in time. It is changing your thinking. I rely a lot on psychology and cognitive behavior therapy to change your thinking. In other words, For example, you know the symptoms, you know that you tend to procrastinate. And in the moment when you are heading down that procrastinating trail, you say, oh, I'm procrastinating. And then you evaluate why. Why am I procrastinating? Do I really not know what to do? Are there just too many different ways to start this? And I'm confused about which one. Do I not know the details of what is expected of me? Why am I procrastinating? And when you can come up with a clear and solid answer, then you act on it. You think, okay, I'm going to act on the things that I can and let go of the things that I can't. And so it's, you know, you cap, I call it my try, my 3C method. You capture the thought, you cross-examine the thought, and then you counter the thought. So you, in the moment, recognize the symptom, challenge the validity of stick, staying in that symptom, and then you counteract that symptom. You just simply act. Now, some people will say, you know, I'm just not motivated. I, I just, I'll, I'll wait until I'm motivated. But by, you know, motivation never precedes action. <laughs> action always creates motivation. So that acting step has to be decisive, immediate, and firm. It has to be, boom, I'm just going to do it. Um, so that's another strategy. A, a, a third strategy is uh, to talk about it. Get in community. Realize that you, you're not alone. Be open about it. Not to the point where you're hanging your head saying, oh, I'm such a fake. But just simply saying things like, you know, I'm not sure about that let me research it. Or what do you think about that? Or can somebody help me figure this out? Or one of my favorites, um, you know, you identify your own expertise and then you teach it to someone else. Because as you're teaching what you know to someone else, you don't feel like a fraud because you know what you're talking about. And even if you're teaching it to somebody who knows it, they're thinking, oh, I, I know this already. I'm smart. So it's like win-win. You're smart, they're smart, it's great. And then my fourth strategy that I teach is to go back through your history 
your professional history and collect, I call it collect your documentation. Find all those certificates and awards and letters of recommendation and thank you notes and and newspaper articles and contests that you won and uh, promotions that you got. Just all the things, all of the legitimate objective data that supports the fact that you are awesome, that you're smart, that you accomplished something and that you contributed something. Even, uh, you know, I've been gone from NASA for a long time. I still keep my pay stubs. And it's not because I'm a hoarder, but because I have to look at this pay stub from the National Aeronautics and Space Administration to remind myself that I was good enough to get paid. (laughs) It added validity to the fact that I wasn't there just taking up space. I was there. They thought I was good enough to stay there and they continued to pay me. It's a little stupid thing, but boy, I look at that and I'm like, yeah, you're right. They paid me. They liked me. I was good. One of the things I really like that you mentioned is this idea of action creates motivation. Just start doing something. And I've heard this in a similar way when we talked about passion. I was mentoring someone a few months ago, an intern, a very junior engineer, and they're like, this passion thing... Like, I'm not really passionate. And I told her, passion comes after it. For example, just try things out like technology and biology, or if you're interested in the medical space, but with technology, then you might discover you're passionate about that field. Don't feel intimidated because there's people in the tech field just saying, I'm super passionate about video gaming. I've been playing since forever. There's also this alternative that this passion and motivation can come after you try many things and discover which one you're more interested in or you gain more experience and then it becomes enjoyable, maybe. So I I just try to, yeah. Oh, yeah. And when you think of technology, especially technology and engineering and science, really, is it possible that we could know everything in one specific area? So if you think that in order to be good, you have to know it all, you're setting yourself up for failure. But when you, like you said, jump in, try it, maybe you'll find a little corner of that field that is lights your heart on fire and you dig so deep and you become, you don't even have to be the expert. You just have to be an expert. There's room for many experts. No way is one person going to know it all. So once you realize that there's room for you to fall in love with something and to flourish and to really dig deep and own it, it just takes away so much of the stress to feel like you have to do it all and know it all. I never thought I would be a writer and a speaker. Oh my gosh, never. (laughs) And here I am. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Love it. Or at the beginning of your career, you were, you said, I want to be a roller coaster and, and bridges. And you were, people could say passionate about those things, but then suddenly you pivoted to something else, which you also ended up really liking. Yeah, absolutely. The other point that I wanted to expand on was you're saying go back and collect your documentation. I think it can also help if you're at work and you ask your coworkers for feedback. You might get things that you don't even notice that you do, right? So true. Yeah, I think we get far too little feedback, encouragement, kudos, applause. Atta girls, we get far too few of it, uh, far too little of it. And I don't think it's arrogant to ask for it. I really don't. And for the most part, you know, people are going to be on your side. Uh, you'll occasionally get a commotion who says, boy, that was really awful. But then you're like, okay, fine. Tell me what I could have done better because I want to get better. Exactly. Maureen, you're also an author and a speaker and you're, you have a book on this topic. 
Can you just talk a little bit about this and where people can find it, that kind of thing? Sure. The book, I just released it in May, and it was because I speak so often on the topic, I got a little tired of when people ask me, this is great, do you have a book? I got tired of saying, I'm working on it. <laughs> so I finally worked on it and finished it. It's called Pushing Your Envelope, How Smart People Defeat Self-Doubt and Live with Bold Enthusiasm. Uh, the pushing your envelope is a phrase that we took in the air propulsion world. It, it's a common phrase, but specifically it means running an aircraft or an aircraft engine beyond its normal safe operating conditions to test what it does beyond those limits, which is what imposter syndrome is about. It's about pushing past that self-limiting self-doubt that keeps you quiet, small, and afraid. So it was released in May. It's available on Amazon. Also, I've got a couple of boxes of it here in my living room. Haha. <laughs> Because most of the times uh, when I speak, I sell it as a, uh, you know, back of the room product mm -hmm. for people to have more of. I can't put it all in a one hour keynote or even a two hour workshop. Or a 30 minute podcast. Or a 30 minute podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I really like the title. Thank you. Yeah, I tell you, it resonates with a lot of people. Uh, it's just, um, you know, yeah, I want to push that envelope. I want to push past this doubt. I want to live with bold enthusiasm. I'm going to include a link to the book in the post for this show, as well as a link to your blog, where you also mm -hmm. have some tips and discussions about imposter syndrome and people can find it there. Perfect. Maureen, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. It's been great talking to you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a joy. Thanks to Blind for being a new sponsor of the show. Go to teamblind.com. That's teamblind.com to download the app and connect with other employees from your company. Check it out.